Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Today's reading will be from Isaiah 52:13 through Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many and makes his intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Mark. Please be seated. We are in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13. A primary idea that we find in our text, Isaiah 53, verse 6, is that the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, has laid on him the servant, the iniquity of us all. As one reads scripture, one often encounters passages that surpass one's expectations. They are so glorious, they leave the viewer breathless. The canyon so deep, is, it is dizzy, and the panoramic picture so vast, one is simply left in awe and incapable of taking it all in. When we read Isaiah 53, We are left in silence. We are left to consider this passage and ponder its depths. 
The text is adequate in itself. As we read it, it is clear. Our words can only muddy the power and the glory and the majesty of the Lord and his glorious submission and mysterious victory. The passage does not answer all our questions, but what it does is speak of a voluntary substitute who dies in behalf of others. It is vicarious in that this one takes our place. It is penal in that it answers the penalty of those living in violation of God's law. And it is an atonement in that it covers the guilt of the transgressor. The one who is righteous shall take the place of another who is guilty. He who is innocent dies for the peace of the criminal. And the one is treated like a leper in order to cleanse the defiled and the unholy. This chapter tells that story. So in approaching Isaiah 53, the desire is that we would work for clarity and leave us considering the radiant glory of our God. Before we move any further, let us begin with another word of prayer. Our Father, as we consider this brutal passage of Scripture, may we be attentive to its profound depth. May we see the suffering, but may we also see the reason as to why the suffering was so weighty. The servant shall now do for the nation what it could not do for itself. Oh, how arrogant we are in thinking we know the depth and the height and the width and the length of what we speak of or think concerning this matter. Guide us through this text. Guard us from frivolity, from a likeness that easily hears and passively responds. May we be slain and captured by this truth. Jesus bore our sins so that we might receive his righteousness. In his name alone we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. The book of Isaiah is filled with extraordinary chapters. If you've had opportunity to read through it, there are primary passages and texts which are indeed extraordinary. One of those exceptional chapters is the passage we are considering this morning, Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through 53, verse 12. The people of God are assured that the injustice of our world shall only be answered and solved by the placating sacrifice of God's servant king in behalf of his people. Isaiah 52 and 53 shows us that our understanding of this future king, the one who will bring justice to the nations, and Yahweh's understanding of this servant king are much different. Where we want a human king that will defeat our enemies in battle and overthrow nations through violence, Yahweh has a different plan. Yahweh's version of a king is one that suffers and allows humans to commit acts of violence against him. When we look at this song or chapter, it is divided into five stanzas. If you have a paper Bible and you can see all of it in one glance, you'll notice how there are six triplets of verses. In chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, and then 53, 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6, which is actually the apex or pinnacle of the chapter, and then 7 through 9, then 10 through 12. And there's an intentional structure or parallelism within the passage. Verses 13 through 15 in chapter 52 parallel verses 10 through 12 in chapter 53. And you can see the structure on the, pass, on the overhead, and the primary point is found then in verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6 speaks of the servant king who offers himself up in behalf of his people. He bears for them their iniquity. And remember, for the people of God to whom he speaks, it is their iniquity that brought them into exile. 
but there is a bigger issue at play, and it is their sin. But for the sake of our study this morning, we shall simply consider three movements within the passage, the prologue, or the opening statement in verses 13 through 15 in chapter 52. And in chapter 52, you really have the summation of what's going to unfold in chapter 53, and then the principle of a penal substitutionary atonement, and why that is important. Those words are important to us. And then the promise of prosperity. That which the servant offers up in himself has a consequence, a result, and it's the gathering of the nations. But there is a reason as to why what he does succeeds. We'll begin with this prologue found in verses 13 through 15. But notice what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. So whatever the servant is about to do, it is going to be vindicated and exalted. But notice, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It speaks of the horror that we're about to read in chapter 53. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So in chapter 52, you have this prologue, or first word, which describes for us what we are about to encounter in chapter 53. And you have his success, his suffering, and the mystery of all of it. What does it mean? But it's encapsulated in those first three verses, the first triplet inside of this structure. But the bulk of the passage that we encounter in 52:53 focuses on the servant's suffering. There are three sets of triplets in the second section. The principle, the principle of substitutionary or a vicarious atonement. We move from this initial prologue in chapter 52 to the principle of this vicarious atonement. And what we will see, which is absolutely imperative, is that this vicarious substitutionary atonement, you have the justice of God has been violated. As a consequence, his wrath comes forth. But you have a justice-satisfying, wrath-stopping, sin-removing, substitutionary death of the servant king. Now, that's a mouthful, but every one of those statements is important as to what we read of in Isaiah 53. And what we see inside the passage is how the servant carries the sins of the people, thus taking upon himself the judgment that was due them. The reason why God can bring them out of exile and the reason why we can be forgiven is because the servant king offers up himself as a sin-atoning sacrifice. And we see this inside the chapter. So when we speak of the justice-satisfying, wrath-stopping, sin-removing, substitutionary death of the servant king, we are talking about the penal substitutionary atonement. And those words mean something to us from this text. Jesus in his atoning sacrifice for sins is an essential element of the Christian faith. Christ bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people in their place. He did this for us. And this view of the atonement, the covering work of Christ, is a key to the gospel. And it is the main paradigm or pattern or lens through which scripture sees the atonement. Sin violates God's law and as such solicits his wrath. Humanity has violated the law of God. We have, hum- we have violated God. And as a consequence of that, that sin, his wrath is poured forth. The death of Christ 
answers the justice of God, thus stopping the wrath of God. And that is why we as the people of God will not face the wrath of God. Because Jesus Christ bore that for us. Sin violates God's law and as such it solicits his wrath. The only infinite and eternal answer for this violation and wrath is the penal act of atonement offered and achieved by the one and only begotten Son of God. That's what God's Son does. But not all Christians embrace the atonement as a penal substitute answering the wrath of God against sin. Now, how did Christianity drift? Because not all of those who claim to be Christian or are Christian believe in this penal substitutionary atonement. This justice-answering, wrath-stopping, substitutionary death. Part of our failure currently is that we do not understand church history. And when we don't understand history, we are doomed to repeat it. But our failure to understand church history led to a drift from an ultimate denial of penal atonement. Such false teaching has always existed. There has always been challenges and denial of the death of Christ. But it is notable in church history with the rise of theological liberalism in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We covered all of this in our Wednesday night study in church history. Now, while claiming to be engaging in Christian theology, modernist liberals and postmodern emergent liberals both appear to be very busy deconstructing the Christian faith, denying and thus destroying the central doctrines of Christianity. One doctrine that is particularly offensive to liberal theologians is the doctrine of Christ's penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. Two individuals within the emergent church movement explain their disgust with penal substitution atonement in the following way. And if you do any kind of study, you'll hear this kind of commentary made concerning this penal substitutionary atonement. And those words are necessary and they are needed. And we are to understand what they mean for us today, especially as we read Isaiah 53. These two individuals in the emergent church movement write, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. Describing the belief that Christ died for our sins as a form of cosmic child abuse pretty much captures their repulsion at the thought that Jesus' death was vicarious. Folks, because of Isaiah 53, I can stand before you and say openly that the death of Christ answered the justice of God and stopped the wrath of God. It is a penal substitutionary atonement. Do I find that offensive in one sense? Sure. But do I celebrate that truth? Yes, because if Jesus did not do that, we would and we can't. Christ has done for us what we could have never done for ourselves. Authors and speakers, and I would always, I'm always guarded in these kinds of statements, but authors and speakers need to be read with discernment, no matter how popular or charismatic their personalities. I put a disclaimer now in my manuscript when you pick it up. 
I offer you resources, but I'm wanting you to read those resources with a level of caution. I'm not trying to give you everything spoon-fed. I'm encouraging us to think. So I'm not wanting to throw out that proverbial baby with the bathwater. You should be able to read articles and ideas that you don't necessarily agree with and profit from it. But you have to be guarded. Authors and speakers need to be read with discernment, no matter how popular or charismatic their personality. For example, Tim Mackey of Bible Project identifies penal atonement as a made-up story by the Western Church mimicking ancient pagan notions similar to Zeus and Greek mythology. You might say to yourself, I like Bible Project. Well, I do as well. I think they do a great job of structure. But you ought to use that resource with a level of caution. If you wonder where I get this from, pick up the manuscript, look at the footnote, consider it for yourself. He says, we falsely understand the atonement through ancient pagan notions of an offended God having to be appeased through sacrifice. He believes penal substitution is a total distortion and perversion of God's character and of the good news and the meaning of atonement. Now, when he speaks of the penal substitutionary atonement, he does so in a very condescending way and filled with spite and sarcasm, very belittling and therefore troubling. He says penal atonement isn't even half true, but maybe a third true. Once you remove the wrath of God against sin, you also begin denying the idea of hell, which in turn leads to either a nihilism, where the soul simply sleeps and there is no eternal conscious separation from God, or universalism, where everyone in the end gets saved. And much of what the Bible Project produces is good, but their teaching on the atonement goes against the Bible and the historic Christian church. Understanding both theological orthodoxy and historic church heresies are important in order to recognize error when you hear it. But as a fellowship, we celebrate the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in behalf of sinners. And in the absence of his death we would face his wrath. But Christ answered justice and endured the wrath for the sake of his people. And thus today we gather in celebration of that truth. Now let's consider three things. The principle of this. First in verses 1 through 3, you have this unassuming appearance. And then in verses 4 through 6, the self-effacing sacrifice. This is what Christ did in behalf of his people. And then this paradoxical treatment. He's a criminal, yet he's placed in the tomb of a rich man. 7 through 9. But the first cluster of these three verses, 1 through 3 in chapter 53, speak of his smallness or hiddenness. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 1, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. We'll see that again in Isaiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The first cluster speaks of this smallness or hiddenness. He is obscure and overlooked. There is nothing about him that causes him to stand out from the crowd. People do not find him attractive in his appearance or personality as a subdued individual. He's not loud. It is almost as if this individual is physically unattractive. We see this same idea in Isaiah 49, verse 2. In Isaiah 49, verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Remember, that's the second of the servant songs. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. 
There was a time when Jesus Christ would indeed be revealed for what he is, but he has this very unassuming appearance. And then Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, a passage we would do well to read, but for time's sake, I'll simply note verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. An unassuming appearance. We hear the uniqueness of this unassuming individual who shall bring justice to the earth, as we noted in Isaiah 42, the first of the servant's songs. The hope for which they looked would come in an unassuming and unexpected way. He came in a way they were not anticipating. Now the second set of three, verses four through six, is the heart of this passage. It's where the emphasis lies. Now, before moving forward on the passage, and if you look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, you have this first person plural, but I'd like to read it with the first person singular because what Christ did in behalf of his people is not in the abstract, but for us, we who are saved. I'm going to read it from the Amplified Bible. If you know the Amplified Bible, it uses a pile of synonyms. But I'd like to do that just to feel the weight of what's being said, and I'm putting it in the first person singular. Surely he has borne my griefs, my sickness, my weaknesses, my distresses, and he carried my sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet I ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God as if with leprosy. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my guilt and iniquities. That chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for me was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, I am healed and I am made whole. Like sheep, I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. And the Lord has made to light upon him my guilt and my iniquity. There are four stark statements made in the sacrifice that we must see The first is this, that the punishment he received was actually and justly for us. That which he received, I deserved. On the cross, the sins of believers were imputed to Jesus, so that in condemning Jesus, God condemned our sins in Christ, sparing us from the full brunt of the Father's wrath. In turn, Christ's righteousness, which we see later on in the chapter, is imputed to us through faith alone, so that we can be declared righteous and acceptable in God's sight. Consequently, God is both just and the justifier of his children. This double imputation, Christ receiving our sin and us receiving his righteousness and its benefits are possible only because Jesus' death was a vicarious substitution. It's somewhat redundant to use both words, but he took our place on the cross. He took my place. I was the one who deserved to die, yet he died in my place in order that I might receive the life that he has. It was a death of the spotless Lamb of God in our place, the perfect sacrifice necessary to satisfy the demands of God's justice. As we hinted at earlier, throughout the 19th century, theological liberalism was forming. It was denying the very tenets of Christianity. During the same period of time, traditional Orthodox or conservative Christian belief was under serious attack. In the fray stepped a group of conservative believers who began to militantly defend what they called the fundamentals. Our church is a part of that heritage. 
we are a part of those who opposed this modernism, this theological liberalism within Christianity. The most basic Christian beliefs that were being denied by the liberal, but without which Christianity is simply no longer Christianity. You take Christ out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. The most famous polemic writing to come out of this era was a collection of short essays called The Fundamentals. This work clearly states Christ's death upon the cross, both as a substitute and as the federal or covenant representative of humanity, voluntarily, selflessly, vicariously, sinlessly, sacrificially, proposed, not accidental, from the standpoint of love, indescribably glorious, not only satisfied all the demands of divine righteousness and justice, but offered the most powerful incentive to repentance, morality, and self-sacrifice. It goes on to say, this is the consensus of all the churches, that the cross is a real vicarious offering, a redemptive death, a reconciling death, a sin-bearing death, a sacrificial death for the guilt and sins of men. His death was the death of the divine victim. It was a satisfaction for man's guilt. It propitiated God. It satisfied the justice of the Father. Now, why did I say all that? Because all of that is true. And it was well said. The second thing inside this centerpiece of truce is that we wrongly assumed he justly received punishment for his own sin. We thought, looking on, that he was dying for his own sin. We did not realize that he was dying for our sin. That's what this passage communicates. For a moment, consider the graphic and violent language employed to describe the punishment received by the servant at the hand of the Lord. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says he was marred beyond human semblance. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, despised, rejected. Verse 4, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Verse 5, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds. Verse 7, oppressed, afflicted. Verse 8, cut off, stricken. Verse 10, crushed. Matthew Henry notes, while we survey the sufferings of the Son of God, we think that is horrific. Let us remember our long catalog of transgressions and consider him as suffering under the load of our guilt. It was for this reason he was smitten. And however deep and disgusting are the stripes received by Jesus, so also and even more are the dark and immeasurable sins that are causing his stripes. His death indeed is horrific, but it is our sin that he is atoning for. Third thing we see inside of verses 4 through 6 is in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The idea of peace and healing inside of verse 5 are synonymous, but each expands on what Christ does for those who receive his work. Not only has he taken my place, but he has given to me benefit, profit, value. It is impossible not to hear the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 when we consider Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Listen to what Paul wrote. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not only does he take our place, but we benefit from that replacement, from that substitute. The Jewish polemicist argues that Christianity, Christ, and the Bible are fabricated by Paul and his disciples to undermine and dismiss historical Judaism. So they look at us as an intentional approach to undermining historical Judaism. And it is beyond the wildest recesses of my intellect to think that the New Testament was intentionally written and fabricated with the express purpose of undermining Jewish faith. The New Testament does not undermine, but continues the Old Testament and brings it to its designed end in Christ. I appreciate what the Jewish rabbis and scribes have to say concerning their Holy Scripture. Indeed, it is of benefit. But they are looking through a glass dimly. Their sight is blurred. The lens through which they read is clouded. And unless and until the Jewish rabbi and scribe read their holy scriptures through the lens of the New Testament, they shall fail to see Jesus. And in that failure, they will continue to be separated from God, who called them from the Ur of the Chaldees. And they shall perish in their sins, eternally separated from the God whom they claim to love. This passage is strongly and clearly Christocentric. The fourth thing we see in verses 4 through 6 is that it is the Lord, the Lord took all that we deserve because of our sin and laid all of it on his son, verse 6. Notice verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on the servant king the iniquity of us all. We read that same language in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It is impossible to downplay, to dismiss, or to neglect, to note how all that the servant received was from the Lord. God caused Jesus to become for us the means through which his violated justice could be answered and his corresponding wrath could be stopped resulting in our healing, our peace, and our justification. You and I might find a penal substitutionary atonement repugnant to our senses, but we accept it by faith, and in so doing, we can be saved. Jesus took our place, and he did it for our benefit or advantage. Through his death, all of our sins have been fully addressed. All of our sins were laid on Christ at the cross whereby we are now fully accepted by the Father, fully accepted, and we have full access to the Father. I'm wanting us to see the connectedness of what we do here. We believe that the Bible does indeed teach a single story, and at the center of this story is Jesus. We can look at Isaiah 53, but we can equally look at the New Testament, through which we read Isaiah 53 and fully appreciate what it has to say. In our previous study in the early part of this year, On the immeasurable riches of Christ, we noted how all of our sin was answered for at the cross. So everything we're talking about this morning happened at Calvary. 
The work of the servant king was so thorough that none of it exists for the believer. It's been fully answered. The sin you committed yesterday, today, and tomorrow was answered for at the cross. That's like a woo. The believer shall never answer for any of it before the Father. The infinite, ever-abounding work of Jesus fully answers for all of my sin. In exchange for my sin, he gives me his righteousness. The Father sees me as righteous. Not because of what I did yesterday or what I will do today or tomorrow, but because of Christ. Therefore, I have unhindered access to the Father and an unashamed acceptance by the Father. You know what he's going to do when he sees me? He's going to give me a hug. Do you hear what this passage is saying in Isaiah? You can deny what I'm saying, but in so doing, you're rejecting this passage. The next triplet inside of this 7 through 9 is this paradoxical treatment. He was silently submissive, verse 7. He opened not his mouth. He was grossly misunderstood. They had no idea why he was enduring, what he was enduring. And then he was curiously buried. It says in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We know of this from Joseph of Arimathea offering up his tomb to Jesus at that time. But you have this paradoxical treatment, this contrasting picture, silently submissive, grossly misunderstood, and curiously buried. The structure of our passage connects his suffering to the glory that follows. And our passage ends with the promise of prosperity. That which he has just endured in our behalf gives us this promise. And we see that in verses 10 through 12. That what he has done has a result. There's two statements made. The first is in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. You have the Lord's pleasure in verse 10. And then the servant's satisfaction. Those two thoughts are elevated within the text. In verse 10, you read that in its immediate connection with the preceding verse. The servant was of absolute sinlessness, and yet the divine hand crushed him and bruised him. The sufferings of the servant are referred not to chance or fate. Why did Jesus die? It wasn't an accident. He didn't simply stumble into it. It was something purposed. It was something designed. And we see that in our text. It was done according to the absolute good pleasure of the Father, manifesting itself in its fullest measure in the hour of apparent failure. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the hand of God that crushed him. The word in our ESV Bible, it says it was the will of the Lord, occurs 11 times in 11 verses in Isaiah. Of those 11 occurrences, the King James translates it by the word please or delight. And your translation might have, it pleased the Lord. It delighted the Lord to crush him. The idea of will translated in the English Standard Version in our Bible that I'm reading from tends to soften the meaning of the word. It actually pleased or delighted God to crush the servant king. But why did this please him? I offer you three thoughts. The first is simply this. When we read all that transpires and realize that God, the Lord, 
caused this to take place. We cannot assign cruelty or perverse emotion or action on God's part, and that's what the emergent liberal does or the theological liberal does. God is always too loving to be unkind and always too wise to make a mistake. That which you and I cannot see or understand, God has reason for. There's purpose behind it. The second thing when we consider the Lord's pleasure is that God alone knows why he does what he does. God alone knows why he does what he does. And what he does is always right, even if we cannot comprehend or fathom why it was done. The third thing we see is that God knows the outcome and achieves it through the penal substitutionary atonement of his only begotten son. And it is that end that pleases him. And in the providence of God, the means of saving his people from sin and death and to restore them to hope and glory was by the sacrificial, substitutionary, voluntary, once for all, penal sacrifice of the servant. The father is not cruel or unkind. He did what was necessary to achieve what was determined. Everything done by the servant is for the people. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And not only is the father's pleasure noted, but also that of the servant himself in verses 11 and 12. The idea of satisfied in verse 11 are out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The word satisfied carries the idea of being completed or full. Jesus Christ sees what he has done and knows it is finished. And why is the servant satisfied? Well, in verse 10... Having died, the servant shall see his offspring and prolong his days. In verse 11, having died, the servant shall make many to be accounted righteous by bearing their iniquities. He sees the consequence of what he has done and he is satisfied. It's completed. It is finished. And in verse 12, having died, the servant carries into effect the divine purposes. Jesus Christ bears the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. That's what Jesus did. What neither the nation of Israel nor you and I can do, Jesus did. He makes those who are unrighteous, righteous. So where do we go from here? We looked at Isaiah chapter 53. We clearly should be able to see this penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ took our sin. He died in our place so that... God would forgive us of our sins. His justice would be met. His wrath stopped. Forgiveness would be extended and we would be declared righteous. The New Testament references make it clear that this passage is referring to Jesus. He is our sin bearer, dying a voluntary substitutionary death in order to provide forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness that you and I enjoy, our accessibility and Acceptability by God is because of what Jesus did in Isaiah 53. He was rejected and despised and died in innocence, yet he is victorious, vindicated, and exalted. In Jesus, God is keeping his covenant with his people. He made a promise. That promise is now coming to pass. In Jesus, God has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Thank God. In Jesus, our sin is placed on him and his righteousness is placed on us. He became our sin bearer. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, his people receive the work done for them by him. 
in the good providence of God, the means of saving his people from sin and death and to restore them to hope and glory was by the sacrificial, substitutionary, voluntary, once for all, penal sacrifice of the servant. I tried to fit in as many words as I possibly could in describing his death. The father is not cruel or unkind. He did what was necessary to achieve what was determined. As a Christian, you must see your Christian life as a consequence. The life we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And this life that we are now living is a consequence of his real vicarious offering, a redemptive death, a reconciling death, a sin-bearing death, a sacrificial death for the guilt and sins of his people. His death was the death of the divine victim. It was a satisfaction for man's guilt. It propitiated God. It satisfied the justice of the Father. Do not, in your Christian life, diminish his death by thinking the life produced by that is now on you to carry forward or perfect. It's all on him. And he is enough. From start to finish and everything in between, it is always about him. Friends, do you believe in Jesus is your Savior from sin and death? Amen. Amen. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I would invite you to consider him. Read Isaiah 53 and recognize what Christ has done to bring his people to the Father. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. What an incredible chapter. It warrants us taking time this afternoon and rereading it and thinking on these things. Our Father, what can we say that we have not already said? May the truths noted percolate in our minds and hearts, and may we bow before you in humble adoration and selfless service in your behalf toward others. Father, we ask that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Save, save sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.